And would you turn with me, please, or listen on as I read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Hear God's word. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto uh, unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that we have your word open before us. It wasn't always so. Christians couldn't always say that. For many centuries, the word was buried in bondage to Roman Catholicism. and No one had any access to it. People tried to translate it and they were put to death for it. There were Latin masses. No one could ever hear the good news, the good words of the, of the gospel. But here we freely hear it and we take it for granted. Oh, Father, as the word is read openly in words that we can plainly understand we see how near salvation has come unto us we ask you that we would take this to heart truly and that we would rejoice in the great privilege that we have to have the word open to us and preached and we pray that that privilege would continue and rather than taking it for granted we would rejoice in the great freedom that you have given us to enjoy this and so we pray this in jesus name amen romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 When I think about my own conversion, I think about these verses. I wonder how many of you could uh, agree with me in that. Uh, These were were verses among others, John 3.16 and so many others that uh, the camp counselor at the Methodist sailing camp, Dave, shared with me. And, uh, and, 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 And so I believed in my heart and so I confessed with my mouth and so I was saved. Well, there's my testimony. I would imagine many of you uh, are, uh, would be able to agree with me. You would say, these verses are very precious to me. These verses were instrumental in my salvation. I'm saying they were in mine. I, I imagine they were in yours. But there's a danger here. And the danger uh, with Romans chapter 10 And especially with these two verses is that we just leave these two verses hanging in the air and we lose sight of the greater argument that is being made. We lose sight, in other words, of what it was that led the Apostle Paul to say these words. Now, what he is setting forth, and you can understand why these verses are so fitting in an evangelistic setting. What he is setting forth is the way of salvation. How is somebody saved? Somebody is saved as Paul, in terms of the contrast Paul is describing in Romans 10, not by his obedience to the law. That's the righteousness of the law. No, the righteousness of faith that we are preaching unto you, the word of faith that we preach, is the way of faith. That's how someone is saved. And that is the way of salvation for all, as Paul will go on to say. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction Uh, Between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the way of salvation. That's the way of uh, the gospel. It's the way of faith, not the way of works. 
But what is the connection with what precedes? Well, we find ourselves mid-sentence. You might have noticed that when I when I read uh, the scripture reading. That he begins with the word that, and and the T is in the lowercase. It's very clear that Paul is uh, continuing a statement that he was already making. The Apostle Paul was speaking in verse 8 of the word of faith which we preach. And he continues defining what that word of faith is that he was preaching. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and so on. That's the word of faith that he preached. And even before that in verse 6 he was expounding upon the righteousness of faith. Which says do not say that well in essence I have to go up into heaven. Or I have to go down into the abyss but This word is near unto you. It's even in your mouth and in your hearts. And that is the word that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. That's what the apostles were preaching. That's what I'm preaching unto you. It's the nearness of salvation. And it's the nearness that we experience when we believe and when we confess. And whoever believes this gospel and whoever confesses it is saved. Well, look at it like this in terms of the broader argument that Paul is making. Where is salvation found? That's the question. Is it found in heaven? Is it found in the depths of the sea or in the depths of the grave? No, Paul is saying you didn't go to either place. It is near unto you. That's what you need to see. It's in your ears. How is it in your ears? Because I'm preaching it to you. That's what he'll go on to say in verses 14 through 17. God has filled your ears with the good news of the gospel. And so it has uh, penetrated your mind in an understanding way. And it has seeped into your heart if you believe. And you've been enabled by faith to confess it. That is the sense in which it is near in your heart and in your mouth and on your lips. It has been brought near through the preaching. And now you find it. You find salvation itself in yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? And when we find it there, then we are saved. When we find it in our hearts and on our lips. And that's the gospel. Or we could look at it like this. It is the statement that he makes in verses 9 and 10 that clarifies who is saved. Who is a Christian? Well, the answer is simply those who have such faith and who are thus enabled to express it like this. I do believe, I really do believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. In other words, the question is, who's the real Christian? It's the one who has faith. But let us see how this works. We're talking about faith. I've entitled this sermon Saving Faith. There's no subject more important than that. And I want to really emphasize along with our confession and our catechisms and the reformed tradition saving faith not just faith but saving faith and what's saving faith well it seems clear i'm asking the question how did paul arrive at this point what's he getting at it seems clear that the apostle paul in describing the the gospel this the salvation that he was preaching that's come near unto you he's describing now how it is we receive it how we're saved in other words It occurs to him now uh, to ask and to answer the question, what is faith? Just as J. Gresham Machen did so many years ago, what is faith? This is a book I've been refreshing uh, myself on uh, this past week. 
That's the question. What is the faith that he preaches? The word of faith has come near unto you. What is it? What is the faith that saves us? And we could subdivide this under three headings, the first of which is the content of saving faith. It's clear that the Apostle Paul is telling us what it, uh, what it is a man believes and having believed it is saved. This is something that we have to grasp. It's something that, well, as Machen describes early on in his book, in the early 20th century, the church was beginning to lose. And that is the thought that faith is nothing if it is devoid of content. But sometimes you hear people say, and this is the danger when we say, well, faith is what saves us. But we have to be careful. We have to describe what we mean. We have to be sure we're talking about saving faith. And when we talk about saving faith, we need to define what the content of that faith is. And it's clear that Paul is doing that. But it's become common for people to say, uh, in fact, uh, it's embarrassing even to admit that I listened to anything this man had to say. But I, I recently heard Joel Osteen say uh, that, you know, uh, who am I to question a man with such sincerity, with such faith? And he was talking about men of other religion. Well, there's the sentiment. It's the idea that if a man is sincere, if he really believes something, well, who am I to question him? You see, it ascribes value to faith itself, devoid of its content. I'm not so much worried about what he believes. I'm just impressed with the fact that he has faith. That's the danger. And that's the danger that the Apostle Paul uh, gets rid of very easily in these verses. It ignores this very simple truth about faith. And that is that its value is not seen in its exercise. We need to recognize that. But its value is seen in its object. What are we placing our faith in? That's the real question. You can only value the, uh, the, or excuse me, you can only measure uh, the value of a man's faith by what he places it in. Now, let me just give you an example. Well, we have this hurricane coming our way. We hope it isn't. But if I were to say, you know, I'm sure it's not going to hit us. I'm just sure of it. I believe it's not going to come. You would say, uh, now, now, what is it that makes you so sure? You see, what you're asking me is, uh, what are you placing your faith in? And the truth is, if I said that, you would say, or I would realize that uh, I'm not placing my faith in anything. I'm just hoping. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's talking about gospel-saving faith. He's talking to the man who says, I believe based on what the scriptures tell me about Jesus Christ. Indeed, I believe based on a living encounter with Jesus Christ that he is able to save me. Well, you see, that's a very different kind of faith than the hopeful, wishful thinking that is so often called faith. The difference is seen, once more, in faith's object. What is it I'm placing my faith in? When I say I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that's a very different thing than saying, I hope this is going to happen. Faith is, uh, is measured by its object, by its content. And so Vaughn says to Dabney, now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while and you just think of what you're allowed to trust in. That's it. That's the exercise of faith. It's what we're allowed to trust in. Stop thinking about its exercise and start thinking more about its object. That's the glory of the Christian gospel. That's the glory of saving faith. It's the object. The object of faith, as, as, as Vaughn went on to say, faith is only an eye to see him. 
Oh, we don't so much glory in faith, you see. We glory in Jesus Christ. And as we glory in him, we believe in him, and so we're saved. Likewise, Machen, in this book, What is Faith?, says it's impossible to have faith in a person without having knowledge of the person. Faith is always based upon knowledge. In other words, it's based upon content. Well, what is it the Christian believes and having believed it is saved? Two things primarily, and these things are not exhaustive in, in any sense. They're representative of a larger uh, content of saving faith, but these are certainly uh, an irreducible minimum. You can't go, uh, you, you cannot get lower than this and, and be a Christian. And the first is that Jesus is Lord, or you confess the Lord Jesus that is the most basic, the most elementary Christian confession. Who is the Christian? The Christian is someone who says Jesus is Lord. Now, we have to say more than that, and we will say more than that in this and the next sermon. But you cannot say less than that. What is meant by these simple words is that this carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and ministered in Galilee, who died that accursed death on a tree, is the Lord of glory. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord. And he's nothing less than that. He's Yahweh. Appreciate the scandal of what I'm saying. He is the Lord of the Old Testament. You read about the Lord who speaks to Moses. That's Jesus. That's what the apostles said. That's what the first Christians said. The word Yahweh is translated kurios in the Greek. He's Jehovah. He's very God of very God. Being the second person of the Trinity who was with God in the beginning and who is God. And, and through whom and for whom all things were created and on and on we could go. John chapter 1. And as you look at his ministry, you find uh, that his teaching ministry is full of this about himself, who he was. He says, I and the Father are one. I'm the Lord. And increasingly, the, the disciples were beginning to realize this about him. And his opponents were realizing at least that the disciples were beginning to believe this about him. And that certainly at least he believed this about himself. And it was for that reason and that reason alone that they sought and succeeded in putting him to death. It was his claim about himself. But it wasn't just his teaching. It was his works. All of his miracles testified to who he was. Not just a man, not just a prophet, but God himself in the flesh. This is something, if you read the New Testament with any amount of discernment, you will see uh, it constantly glories in all of the Gospels, all of the prophets even, but, but the New Testament especially, the Gospels, the book of Acts, the preaching of the apostles, the epistles, the book of Revelation. It glories in the lordship of Jesus Christ, the identity of who he was. He is the Lord. This is what the apostles, uh, just to give one example, immediately said about preaching. If you think of how Peter closed his first sermon following the ascension, he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so they sought to kill those men, even as they did Jesus. Appreciate the difficulty that both Jews and Greeks found in saying this. Jesus is Lord or the Lord Jesus. Jews, because they would then be ascribing immortal deity to the man Jesus. He is Yahweh. That was something most Jews simply could not do. 
or the Greeks because they were required to say Caesar is Lord. Well, now they were saying, no, not Caesar, but Jesus. You see, here was the dilemma the apostolic preaching presented. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For Jews request a sign, but Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews' assembling block and to Greeks' foolishness. Here was the ultimate scandal. Not only the, the, the claim itself, which involves salvation in his name, but even beyond that, the practical outworking of this idea. What does it mean to say, Jesus is Lord? That if he is Lord, and I believe this, so I will commit myself fully unto him. I will submit to him as Lord. You see, if I, if I say that with my mouth, and I believe it in my heart, you, you, might, uh, you might expect to see it in my life as well. Well, what does this mean practically? Jesus tells us when he says, take up thy cross and follow me. And so we obey the summons. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. And does someone ask, uh, might this prove costly? Indeed, Jesus says it's meant to be costly. That's why costly. I said costly. Well, that's why he uses the language of the cross. Yes, the whole picture of following Jesus is summed up in the idea of the cross, which is a costly picture. It's meant to cost nothing less, he says, than your very selves. He says just before that, unless a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, that's what the picture of the cross is. It's nothing less than, as Paul says, the death of my very self as I follow after Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. That's what a Christian is. That's what the cross is. Following after Jesus, whatever the cost, if he's Lord, if that's really what he is, and if I really believe that about him, then whatever he calls me to do or to suffer in his name, I will do. It's very clear that the apostles in preaching that also believed that and lived like that. And so the content of this assertion, Jesus is Lord, is not merely a theoretical idea. It isn't just words that you say in a mechanical way. Just say Jesus is Lord and then you're a Christian. But it's a very practical one. To say Jesus is Lord and actually to believe it involves a life that is committed to him. It's a question of commitment, you see. Who's the Lord of your life? That's the claims of the way of faith that we preach. What do you really believe? What have you committed yourself unto? In many ways, it's the most searching question there is. Who is the Lord of your life? And so it comes to this as Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And the unbeliever, whatever he says about Jesus, has no true conception of who he is. But the Christian is someone who, like Peter, sees Jesus for who he is. He's the Lord. That's the first thing. But the second thing that is uh, is the object or the content of faith concerns what happened to him, that God raised him from the dead, namely, uh, that is the resurrection. This is the other essential thing that we find in Acts, not only in the preaching of the apostles, but in the profession of the first Christians, that the man, Jesus, who was nailed to the cross, who died on the cross, whose body laid in the grave, God raised from the dead. 
And in this way, his divine essence and personhood as the very son of God became apparent. What God was demonstrating by raising Jesus from the dead is who he was. He's the Lord. He's the son of God with power. Romans chapter one, verse four. For death could not hold him. No, not given who he was, as Peter says on Pentecost. Here, indeed, is one of the central facts of the gospel, which Believing a man is saved. But let us see again the scandal of this, the difficulty. You see, there's nothing easy about believing. One, that Jesus is Lord, and two, that God raised him from the dead. To this day, it is obvious the claim of the resurrection goes a bit too far for most. Are we really prepared to believe with all of our sophisticated, scientific, 21st century knowledge That Jesus Christ, who laid in the grave, actually rose from that grave. And that he actually ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he dwells in incarnate glory to this day. And from there he will return again with judgment and salvation. Are we really prepared to believe that? Well, it's clear at the very least that this is what the apostles believed. And it's what they preached. And they preached it, or as they preached it, they preached it as those... Who claimed to have witnessed it. They not only preached the resurrection. But they said we were witnesses of it. We beheld his glory as the resurrected Lord. And yet as they preached it. They said this. It isn't necessary to witness the resurrection. In order to be saved. You merely need to believe it. He was resurrected. We, We beheld him with our very eyes. And so we preach him unto you. And merely by believing this message, you will be saved even as we. That's the apostolic word of faith that they preach. You don't need to be like Thomas, always doubting. In fact, as Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. That's our peculiar privilege. That we are content merely with the word of faith. And so we believe. But the test of our profession to have faith, to have saving faith, is whether we believe this fact. That God raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. Still, people are questioning it. They're trying to spiritualize it rather than accept it as a literal fact of history preached by the apostles and accepted by those who have faith. It is clear at any rate that no one who denies this fact has any right to claim to be a Christian. This is of the essence of the Christian gospel. And this is of the essence of what it is to be a Christian. It is to profess our belief that Jesus Christ has been raised. For, as the apostle says, if Christ is not raised, as some were even suggesting in his day, then our faith in him is futile and we're still in our sins. That is, our faith does not save us. If our faith is this, that Christ has died but has not been raised. Take away the resurrection and there is no justification. Take away the resurrection and there is no resurrection or hope of resurrection for us. Take away the resurrection and there is no salvation. Take away the resurrection and Jesus is not Lord. Take away the resurrection and there is no use, none whatsoever, in placing our faith in him. No, we are worse than fools if we do so. You might as well go on with your sin while you can, Paul says. For today we live and tomorrow we die. For the gospel, in that case, proves to be something that cannot help us if Christ is not raised. Oh, but if he is, as the apostles claimed, 
then it is clear that Jesus, having conquered death, is able to help those destined to die. Do you see then why the resurrection is the pivotal fact of the Christian gospel? It isn't the only fact, but it is the pivotal fact. Listen to Peter when he says, David still lies in the grave. The the Old Testament prophets still lie in the grave. They cannot help you now, he says to the Jews. So I say, along with him. But there is one who does not. There is one whose body laid in the grave, who has been raised and who even now is at the right hand of God. And he can help you. And in him, there is salvation to all who call upon him. Any and all. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus Christ. When God raised him up. He declared him openly to be the son of God and the savior of men. Know for certain that he is both Lord and Christ. And whoever believes on him will be saved. You see, to close up this first point, faith is not devoid of content. Or at least saving faith is not devoid of content. The empty faith of the unbeliever perhaps is, but not the faith of the believer. It's full of content. There is no faith, nor can be. Unless we are inspired by the facts themselves to trust in this Jesus. The care of our souls for salvation. Oh, but here are the facts in their barest form. That Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. But that's not all. That's only the beginning. There is also as a second point, the seat of saving faith. And that is the heart, the seat of saving faith, the heart. You notice the Apostle Paul is not content merely that a man confesses with his mouth. That is essential, but it's not enough in itself. It is the man who believes in his heart, and so out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks these words Who is saved? Jesus is Lord. And so we see in his definition of saving faith, the Apostle Paul includes the heart. He includes the mouth, but also the heart. This is essential. And I have a lot more to say about this in the second sermon. But for now, let me say these things. He's talking about the inner man. Think Romans 6. The new man in Christ. The heart refers to that. It it, it refers to the affections, the Puritans would call that. Or as John Murray says, uh, let me read. This is very helpful. He says, the heart is the seat and organ of religious consciousness. And must not be restricted to the realm of emotions or affections. It is determinative of what a person is morally and religiously and therefore embraces the intellective and volative. That is the mind and the will as well as the emotive, the heart. It's all that a man is inwardly, the inner man, the new man. Here's the point. Words alone, words which are spoken can save no one. That is the fallacy both of the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to be fair when I say this as well and give me a chance to unpack this a little more in the second sermon, but also of the Arminians in some cases. Just say the words and you're saved. That's fideism. That's the fallacy of fideism or fideism, however uh, you say it. No, Paul says the words, in fact, are meaningless unless there's a corresponding belief in the heart. The words alone will not save you. Let us try to see why that's so important. The heart, the inner man. Well, we could look at it like this. What's the problem with the unbeliever? It's not just what he says, but who he is. The seat of his religious consciousness. It's the heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. 
they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. It's the heart. It's the inward man. Understand that salvation is more than an uh, an intellectual understanding or assent to the truth. That's the Roman Catholic error. It's more than what people say. It's more than just saying, you know, I think I agree with that. Yes, I'll believe that. That's not salvation. Salvation is altogether more thorough than that. It involves first and foremost. And when I say salvation, I mean saving faith. It involves a change of heart. You're stuck in Romans 1. You've got to get out of there. You have a corrupt heart. You need a new heart. Salvation involves A change of the whole person's inner life, which formerly was so opposed to God, explaining the hostility to the truth. Salvation, let us see, isn't something that happens. This is the Arminian error. It isn't something that happens when a man decides for Christ. No man decides to be a Christian. Salvation is something rather that happens to a man in spite of himself, in spite of what he has He's born a sinner. He's a God-hater. And yet he finds his heart, his affections, his beliefs are changed. It's something that's happened to him. A radical change from above. Jesus says, unless a man be born from above or born again, he cannot be saved. And this is something that registers in his experience. It's a conscious experience. It's something that happens not just in his, his mind. He wasn't just convinced of the truth, but in his heart. There is this lasting change. A man who is a Christian is a new creation. And so there's a change of heart. There are new desires, new thoughts, new affections. So that what he formerly hated, now he loves. You see, that's the importance of the heart. I don't just say Jesus is Lord, but when I say it, I love him. That which I formerly distrusted, now I trust. You see, I've had a change of heart. I suddenly find I'm able to place my trust in Jesus Christ. Once I lacked confidence, now I have it in him. So, too, there's this newfound element of delight and relish in the new man of the truths he professes to believe. He doesn't just say them. He loves them. The new man is someone who delights in the gospel. He understands it with the mind, yes, but also with the heart he believes. Do you see the idea here? For that matter... I could describe saving faith like this. It involves a hearty embrace of the truth. A wholehearted embrace of the truth. Do you see what the apostle is ruling out here? He's saying there's no room for a half-hearted kind of Christian. That's not faith. Faith is a wholehearted embrace. The soul's embrace of Jesus Christ for salvation. It's nothing less than that. It involves all that a man is inwardly, his whole heart. You see, again, that's a very different thing than saying in a cold, theoretical kind of way. Yes, I I, I think I tend to agree with this. I've said the words, now I'm saved. Now, I'll give you another example. And I'm sorry to say this because I have great admiration for Ray Comfort. And I like to watch some of his YouTube videos and his evangelistic endeavors. But I'm sorry to say that as soon as someone says Jesus is Lord, he says, you're a Christian. Now, that's not it. 
I'm sorry to say it. I admire all that he says in urging people to come to Christ, but he's too quick in defining them as a Christian. You've said the words, now you're a Christian. That's only half the equation. And it misses the better half. He's got to believe in the heart. So Paul is saying something more is involved in true saving faith. He's talking about the heart's embrace of Jesus Christ for salvation. The Christian is someone who not only professes to believe these things. These are the things of his own heart. That's what he means when he says with the heart a man believes. These are the things that he treasures inwardly in the inner man. The stuff of his own soul. And, and so having, having believed them, to use the language of the confession, the principal acts of saving faith are he accepts, he rests, and he receives upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. That's saving faith. You don't do that with the mind only. You do that with the heart, with the soul. Jesus Christ offers the man salvation and he receives it gladly. And this new man, his heart is now bound to Christ. That's what a Christian is. The man who has faith. You see, it's more than an intellectual understanding of the truth. Do you realize, and again, we're talking about faith here. Do you realize that the demons have a kind of faith? The demons believe that Jesus is Lord. Remember, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, uh, they confess who he is. I don't remember the exact uh, details. Jesus, son of the living God, something like that. They knew exactly who he was. Did their faith save them? No, it didn't. Go and read James. That's exactly what he's talking about. There's all the difference in the world between faith and saving faith. Do you understand the difference? Paul is talking about it here. It isn't just the words that you say. It's the motions of the heart. Saving faith ventures upon Jesus. It is a conviction formed in the heart, as with Abraham, that God in Christ saves sinners. That his word is true and may be trusted. And so the soul, again, like Abraham, think Romans chapter 4, ventures all upon this truth. Even this very person, Jesus Christ, I'm resting solely in him, not in myself, not in the law, not in the prophets, but him alone. My faith is in Jesus and on no other grounds do I expect God to save me. You see, it's a conviction, a conviction of the soul that Jesus Christ saves sinners, even myself. He's enabled me to see it. It's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, the Apostle Paul says. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, even one as wicked as me, even the least, even the vilest. You see, he's not just saying the words. He's expressing the conviction of the soul. Listen to how John Calvin puts it. He says, Christian faith, which alone deserves the name faith, is not content with mere knowledge of a story. It settles deep within the human heart, cleansing it of pretense, make-believe and hypocrisy, and so gripping it that it does not likely fade away. It's something that settles deep within the heart, he says. It's a hearty thing. Christian saving faith is a hearty thing. It's a heart thing. 
Or I would define saving faith as a humble reliance on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I say humble reliance because the soul emptied of all its resources looks for salvation in him alone and not in self. And this is the kind of belief worked out in the heart. Well, let us see lastly the issue of saving faith or the outworking. Very briefly, number one, confession with the mouth. With the heart a man believes, but with the mouth he confesses what he believes in the heart. There's no way to separate these two things, you see. If there is true belief in the heart, so the mouth will speak always. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. Primarily, we ask, where will this be done? Primarily in the church. You've got to profess your faith in Jesus Christ. I have more to say about that in the sermon to come. What, what is a credible profession of faith? What does it mean to confess our faith before men in the church? What are the elders to look for in a credible profession of faith? And as we confess him before men, so he will confess us before the Father. That's exactly what he tells us. But, of course, there are other arenas in which this might occur. Others may ask, Peter envisions, what do you believe? And if you're a Christian, if you're saved, you can be sure of this, that these words will not be far from your lips. Jesus is Lord. The mouth will speak what the heart believes. There may even, as in the case of the martyrs, be a sword to your throat. Still, the criteria is the same. What do you believe, Christian? I believe that Jesus is Lord. Men have paid uh, with their blood. For this. The second issue is righteousness. He says unto righteousness. And here he simply means justification by faith alone. And so you see what the soul looks for by faith in Jesus Christ, not salvation only, but salvation in terms of righteousness. We are looking for righteousness, not in the law, but in Jesus Christ, for he is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Verse four, that is What uh, not only what we look for, but what we find when we believe we are justified by faith alone. Number three and lastly, salvation unto salvation. That's the last thing. A man who believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth is saved. This is uh, just a summary of all that's gone before. Here is the way of salvation. It's the word of faith. The apostles said that we preach salvation in the name of Jesus and no one else. And whoever believes in him, whoever cries upon that name, whoever calls upon the Lord will surely be saved. He will not be put to shame. Think of blind Bartimaeus in the Gospels. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Was he put to shame when he called upon Jesus? Or did he find what he sought? Well, that's the word of faith that we preach. Whoever seeks salvation in the name of Jesus will not be ashamed. He will surely find what he seeks. That's my testimony. That's the apostle's testimony. And that is the testimony of all who are saved in his name. How are we saved? We are not saved, let me be clear, on the strength of our faith or on the strength of our profession. But we are, stra- we are saved solely on the strength of Jesus Christ himself. And it is as we rely on him. As he is strong, though we are weak, that we are saved. Yes, he is able to save any and all who come upon him or unto him and bear his yoke. Again, as Vaughn says, faith is only an eye to see him. And having seen him for who he really is, he's the Lord whom God raised from the dead. So the soul ventures all upon him and finds in him righteousness and salvation and life forevermore.
For as the apostle goes on to say in verses 11 and following, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. I ask you now in in closing, very simply, I have more to say about this in the sermon to come. But I ask you simply this. Do you have such faith? Have you ventured all like Abraham and like Paul and so many others upon Jesus Christ, not upon yourself? Not upon the prophets, not upon the law, not upon the philosophy and the wisdom of the age, but solely upon Jesus Christ himself. Is that the conviction that by the Holy Spirit has been formed in your soul? That Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And yes, he has saved even one as sinful as me. Well, I say to you, then you have faith and you are a Christian and you ought to be confident and take rest in that. Amen. Let us come now to the table.